Welcome to Lab Sessions. I'm Zach Elliott. I love people, and I get to learn from some of the best. This show gives me a chance to invite you to join me in pursuit of more life and more beauty. Here's to that pursuit and to the conversations ahead. Hey, welcome everybody to Lab Sessions. Culture is not a territory to be won or lost, but a resource we are called to steward with care. Culture is a garden to be cultivated. I will never forget reading those words for the first time and the impact that they had on my life, and they're as fresh and powerful today as ever before. In a moment of so much division and suspicion and fear, my next guest's life and work are refreshing our collective soul and inviting us to join him in a longer and slower and deeper way. Mako Fujimura is a leading contemporary artist whose process-driven refractive slow art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as a small rebellion against the quickening of time, of our time. His art has been featured widely in galleries and museums around the world, He's an arts advocate, writer, and speaker recognized worldwide as a cultural influencer. A presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009, he served as an international advocate for the arts, speaking with decision makers and advising governmental policy on the arts. His books, including Refractions and Culture Care, have won numerous awards, and Silence and Beauty received the Aldersgate Prize. He has served as the director of the Bren Center for Worship, Theology, and the Arts at Fuller Seminary and now enjoys dividing his time when we're not in COVID between Princeton, New Jersey, and his studio in Pasadena, California. Marco founded the International Arts Movement in 1992, which is now I Am Culture Care, and he oversees the Fujimura Institute. He's a recipient of four Doctor of the Arts or uh, four Doctor of Arts honorary degrees, and is one of the most respected voices around the world on faith and culture. Mako is also a man known for his gentleness and his wisdom. It's an absolute honor and joy to share some time with him today. Mako, thank you for making time with for all of us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Well, your life and your work have tr- are truly beautiful, and you've inspired and impacted so many of us by helping us to have imagination and language for this idea of culture care. And before we talk about culture care, I was hoping maybe you could share just a bit about Nihonga and why David Brooks describes your work as a small rebellion against the quickening of our time. Yeah, that's a great uh introduction to both my approach to my art and i think what i'm trying to do with my life and many uh mentoring opportunities i have of younger artists or uh, people interested in culture care um i want to slow them down a bit and slow myself down (laughs) first of all um I was trained, um, I was born in U.S. and went back and forth between U.S. and Japan, but I was trained uh, in graduate school after going to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. I graduated, I went back to Japan to study for six and a half years in what is known as Nihonga, which is Japanese-style painting, and uh, it harkens back to 16th century, 15th century uh, Japanese royal uh, painting using 
minerals and gold and silver and uh, paper and silk. Um, the, and, and I have intentionally uh, went back to using these materials that were used in 16th and 17th century Japan. But what I do uh, is contemporary art, so it, it tends to uh, almost jump out in, in a way that it um, uh, forces or maybe invites people <laughs> to slow down. Uh, so when I exhibit in New York or uh, in Asia, uh, I recently had a very extensive exhibit at Gonzaga University Museum, uh, adjunct museum there. And it's, uh, it was wonderful to see many of the retired priests using my art as a way to uh, have morning meditations and morning prayer. Um, and my art is prayer, and um, it's designed uh, some... Uh, some will call it abstract, um, you know, non-representational, but there are monumental works. Um, at Gonzaga, there was a work that was 30 feet long and 7 feet high, um, but layered over and over so that, um, as David uh, Brooks found out that you don't really see the painting for about 20 minutes mm. um, because our eyes are so adjusted today to make quick decisions and move on. So uh, I think here's an opportunity to sit in front of uh, uh, a painting and let your senses open up. And when David did that, he said he could not believe uh, the difference. Uh, after about 10 minutes, he started to see an entire galaxy floating about in between the hues of my paintings. And that's, that's our eyes are incredible instruments, and uh, we don't use them uh, uh, anymore in the way that they were designed by God to uh, be used. You know, so when David says in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, I literally think that the arts, uh, whether it be paintings or theater or music, can open up a sensory path to experience God in a new way. So that's kind of how I have drawn back to 17th century Japan to, um, to create uh, immersive experience for a 21st century audience. Well, it's critical in our time. You you talk about how we're being shaped to think quickly and to make quick decisions and how it takes 20 minutes to find, even just to, to give 20 minutes to one piece uh, would be unusual, would be strange, disruptive for so many of us. We just don't have that in our regular liturgy, our regular experience, and we need it. It's part of why I think our culture is is struggling and why your voice is so important in this cultural moment. And uh, you have 80 to 100 layers in some of these yes. paintings. <laughs> yes, before I start. <laughs> before, before you even start. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's probably impossible to even quantify, but when you approach a piece that you're working on, yeah. Um, and I'm sure you have to have multiple pieces in the same um, at, at the same time. But as you're working on a piece, is that a do you approach it as hey, there's no end in time um, that I'm trying to complete this by? Or you just let it unfold because of time and temperature and letting the elements dry? Or or can you say this is about a three month project for this piece? Yeah, when I 
get a commission of some kind, you know, I tell them, give me a certain amount of time, three, four months, usually, uh, depend, depending on the, the, the project, how complex the project is. But um, so there is that timeline, but, but the whole purpose is not to give a deadline, but, but really to, um, to prioritize it in my studio. So when I'm, um, what I like to do actually is to open up possibilities for painting to sit for a long period of time. And, and even with these commissions, when I'm done and um, it's in a client's home or office or whatever, I, you know, I tell them, you know, it's going to take about two years for the pigments to settle. So, you know, the color is going to be deeper and uh, your experience is going to be different. Um, and, and so I, I find myself in this process of making rather than trying to finish it. In fact, the work is not really done just because it's handed off to a gallery or museum. It continues to uh, settle over time. And uh, so, so that's part of it. And, and I, I, I want to also say that one of the intentionality of this, of slowing myself down is not, just for my own sake, but as, as you know, um, uh, our time um, is time that is quickened by uh, quick judgments. And, uh, um, you know, when we, when we say when something tragic happens, we say that was senseless. Mm. And, you know, that word is very significant to me because... I, I totally agree. It's, it's losing your senses. You know, we're losing our senses. And that's because these, that's why these senseless things are happening. We have to cultivate our senses and we have to cultivate our imagination that is, you know, given by God to uh, be attached to our sensory immersive experience. So th those are things that I think about in the studio, even when I'm creating something. I'm literally praying uh, with every stroke, um, you know, with every gilded gold. I am praying that God's city of God will descend into our fractured cities of, of men and, and uh, we, we can somehow, uh, even, even as, as artists, um, you know, um, be able to provide a prayer uh, vision for that. That sacrifice to choose a slower way is really the artist's, uh, maybe it's the suffering way of the artist to, um, to choose a different way, to choose a, a countercultural way as a culture is shaping us to think fast and move fast and in so many ways to lose our senses. Your choice to immerse yourself in a world that is slower, so that we you could recover and use and leverage the the gift, the beauty of those senses. There's a there's a cost to it, and I think that's why it's so wonderful to to take this time because so many of us have not followed in that way yet. But there's something in us longing for it, and whether it's you know you have a garden in your in Princeton there at your studio, and so you're this idea of a garden to be cultivated. When you say culture is a garden to be cultivated. I don't know if there's a more important idea, as I said, to understand and embrace right now at this particular cultural moment 
take us back to the origin of that idea and help us understand what you mean by culture care. Yeah, thanks uh, for that question. It's uh, it's been a journey as an artist, um, and, and particularly artist of faith. You know, navigating the fractures of uh, you know civic discourse, the the reality. Uh, and when I began to exhibit in New York City in the mid '90s, it, it was really. Uh, at the beginning of the cultural wars mindset, um, and we were obviously fighting for um, legitimate issues and values. And yet, what we we chose to do, and as uh, sociologist uh, James Davidson Hunter mourned I- even in in the seventies and eighties, that cultural wars is is built on polarities that are accentuated and, and it's it's really about demonizing the other side. So no one wins by winning culture wars. If you win, you lose. Um, and, you know, if you liken it to a garden, you know, if you have a shared space and um, somebody that you're sharing and you disagree with, um, it's almost like you poison the other side to demonize the other side, but what you're really doing is poisoning the entire earth uh, underneath you. So your territory is going to ever be shrinking. So by winning, you lose. And, you know, before you know it, you're defending a territory that you never thought you had to defend because by poisoning the entire earth, the ecosystem doesn't, you know, select ideologies. So it's really important to remember that culture is ubiquitous. Culture is a large, you know, there's no us versus them. We are the culture. We swim in the same ecosystem. Mm. So if we choose to do our battles, and I'm not saying that cultural wars is not necessary or that there are times when, you know, even real wars must happen to defend certain uh, territories and certain battles. Those, there are times of war. But what I'm saying is that if we unnecessarily use that as the only alternative to preserving our values, then we will uh, end up poisoning the entire land, and which is what um, James Hunter warned. And of course, we, we are seeing that today. No matter what your ideology is, you, you are fighting to preserve, to survive, and uh, you can't believe that the issues that we're fighting for is, you know, e- even uh, something to be uh, contentious about. Uh, so some of the issues are really, some, you know, we think it's survival. Our, our children's survival is at stake. But when we pull back from that, and if you listen actually to your children, you know, they are seeing something else. Uh, they're seeing uh, these beautiful flowers not coming up anymore. They're seeing, you know, the things that you're trying to grow. You can't be fruitful anymore because, the, you know, you have, like, spiked, uh, let's say, the generative cycle of plants by, you know, putting in, putting in chemicals, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the tomatoes don't taste like tomatoes anymore because it's, it hasn't had the time to you know, rest or time to grow. And our children are saying, you know, well, that's great that you fought your culture wars, but look look at what we have. It's, our land is decimated. Our culture is decimated. Where is the thriving that I can have in that? Or I, even as Christians, how can we 
contribute to the future generative growth, you know, and you have poisoned the land, so it, it, you made it impossible for us. And, and so I began to think about this as an artist early um, 2000, especially after 9-11. Um, I, I was uh, uh, three blocks away from the towers, and my children grew up as uh, ground zero children. And in, in that scarcity moment of, of intense battles, right, we, we had a choice between, of course, fighting back, you know, and, and then nurturing something that's very important. And, of course, we did both. But, you know, for our children, you know, their question was, you know, not so much how can we rebuild the towers, but what is our value, you know, and their values was clear to me was community, their friendships, and also their creativity and imagination. So to me, that kind of pointed the way to this conversation on cultural care as a gift to the next generation, uh, at least for me as a Christian living in fractured times, living in ground zero, I had, you know, I could fight my battles um, or I can invest, I can cultivate and, you know, till the soil of culture to rejuvenate that, to help nurture uh, the plants that were planted there. So those were thoughts, you know, uh, that I had as I, um, I, as I ended up writing the book Culture Care. It's incredible to think about your life intersecting in that moment on at ground zero and literally standing blocks away, living blocks away, trying to cultivate life blocks away from that total devastation. And, I mean, just physically, you were in that space and could physically see that destruction and devastation. And there was a choice to start building or cultivating these common things in a very diverse, very pluralistic place. And the question before you, are, what are we going to do together with this ecosystem? And I love the use of ecosystem uh, to shift us ver to stewardship versus battling over territory. And James Hunter said, you know, drawing from his work, you, you pulled out that he said that the disregard for that, for the goal of common life is the abject, abject failure of our time. And yes. that just jumped out at me, even as you were describing ground zero and, and the thought of having to intersect with a neighbor who is maybe very different from you, sees things very different from you, but you have a choice. Are we going to work together towards a common goal or abandon that? And would you say a little bit more about what you heard uh, and what James Hunter was pulling at when he said that disregard for the com for the goal of common life? Right, and overlapping that is, you know, raising my kids in Ground Zero and facing that every day, and and then yeah, realizing that around the corner from our loft was a uh, grade school, primary school called PS234, where all of my kids went. And um, I remember taking my second son, Clayton, um, to get ice cream one hot summer. This was before 9-11. We sat down in front of a maple tree that he had helped to plant as a first grader, and he was a fifth grader in New York. You graduate as a fifth mm -hmm. grader. Not knowing that 
you know, his final year at the school will be um, shortcut by 9-11, and that tree will be blasted with, you know, the smoke, uh, fire smoke that, that exploded the cars around it, and, you know, he was about to come out from the school when the second tower collapsed, so he would be in real trouble if the rescue worker didn't push him back mm-hmm. in, into the school, you know, shut the door. So he was protected. And I remember that ice cream, you know, <laughs> eating that ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him um, about Jeremiah 29 vision that God gave to, um, you know, his people in exile in Babylon. And everybody's thinking, oh, you know, we we want to get back to Jerusalem and we want to, you know, this, this exile cannot be for long. And uh, in the previous chapter, the false prophet Hananiah speaks, you know, it's going to, go, it's going to be two years, you know, so hang in there, right? And then he dies because God is upset um, with the false prophecy. And Jeremiah said, this is going to take seven years. And in fact, in Jeremiah 29, when you read that carefully, it is absolutely stunning what God tells the exiles. You know, God said, I have brought you into exile. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he doesn't even say it's your sins, which initially it seemed like that, right? Because you you know, you lose your capacity to even defend your territory and you invade it and you're taken uh, prisoners. Uh, and you you are um, basically in these prison camps, you know, being living a, a new life. And God says, I brought you here. You know, and, and says, you know, instead of a short recovery, it's going to be a long time, seven years. You know, that's like three generations. So you better plant trees, you know. And, and I, was, I was using that wow. to tell Clayton that, no, you did the right thing, son. You know, we are here in exile in your city. The, our values don't match up with this pluralistic city, but we're here um, uh, upon God's call, and we're going to plant trees, you know. And it says, get married and, <laughs> and settle down and, you know, grow your food, you know, and, and, and which, which is a very generative you know, culture care path, right? Rather than say fight back, you know, try to, you know, recruit uh, armies. It says, no, no, you need to settle down. Uh, do not lose your identity as my chosen people, you know, and plant trees and, you know, build um, and nurture uh, growth. And um, and so, so that, I, I distinctly remember uh, even the taste of that ice cream, you know, like so we were Clayton and, and then sharing that. And, and then, of course, um, two months later, we, we were in ground zero. Wow. I think there's a quote attributed to Martin Luther that says, even if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today or a plant an apple tree today. What a beautiful picture yes. of generativity and culture care. And yeah. Even I didn't know we were going to even intersect with this moment of um, ground zero. I, I wasn't aware that that's how close you were to that event. And as we talk about it, I, I have a motion that I can feel in me. And, and I think that it provokes something in us for all of us who endured that from a distance. We watched it. We experienced it. And then downstream, we have experienced, you know, year after year of war 
And whether we're in Afghanistan or Iraq, we're all of the downstream trouble and the refugee crises from those uh, conflicts. We're many of us are just exhausted, um, not only from those physical battles, but years of our culture being ravaged by culture war. Really, we live and we've lived and come of age really. Um, unwittingly, sometimes participating, sometimes knowingly participating in these culture wars, and we want a healthier ecosystem. Um, it's hard to imagine one in our current moment, and I think um, there is that sense of sadness, and even as you talk about Ground Zero, there's a bit of that exhaustion or despair that I think a lot of us feel. As an artist, what can we do with that? How can that sadness, despair, that that those scars maybe that we that we carry from those battles and participation mm-hmm. in them, how can that actually serve us and and lead us forward? Or how can we draw from that as we try to imagine or enter a new space and a new posture of culture care? Yeah, in in this particular time of pandemic and racial unrest and. All that is happening in society, you know, we, we the death count uh, from COVID nineteen is, um, you know, it's, it's almost like nine ever multiply mm. by you know fifty times uh, at this moment, and and it's just it's just inconceivable to be in a space where we are simultaneously grieving and. Uh, you know the damage to economy and and the enduring effects of what's happening um, is is going to be long lasting, um, and so we we have to understand that there are lessons that we can learn from certainly from nine eleven. There are lessons we can certainly learn from. You know, Columbine High School uh, massacre. We, there are lessons that we need to learn, um, and and part of the moment that we live in is in in terms of the impact. Um, it has absolutely universal um, impact, right? There's not one person alive on this planet today that is not in some way affected by COVID-19 crisis. Um, and therefore, um, to me as an artist, when, when I think about that, you know, therefore there's an opportunity to share in the grief and sorrow and lament, um, of all people. Um, that my sadness of losing a friend is connected to somebody in China losing their friends and Bangladesh, you know. And so what does that mean? I, I don't know, Furia, but but I think it has to mean something mm-hmm. um, because if we can share in that grief, um, and I often talk about um, this idea, notion in theology called common grace, where you know God sends sun to shine on the good and evil, and uh, rain rain to be you know brought into uh, good and evil as well. And this common grace is idea that grace can operate universally. That God blesses uh, people, whether they are Christians or not. Right? And thank God for that. 
But I also think about the reality of common curse, where we share in something of devastation um, and, and we can use that toward empathy or fight wars over it um, because of scarcity that you'll bring. And I, I feel like we're in an inflection point where that choice is given to us every day, mm. you know, and do we just go into a scarcity preservation mode, trying to protect our families from harms or whatever, um, or do we say, look, everybody is experiencing this, and here's a way that we can be kind. Here's a way that we can think about others. Um, here's a way that, you know, um, many Christians during the Black Plague went to care for the sick. Um, and for me, you know, I was just speaking yesterday to an actress uh, in New York City, and, and she, she's a Shakespearean actress. And I was telling her that, you know, Shakespeare built his theater during the Black Plague because he couldn't build it in London. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and the uh, theater arts were suspect too. You know, there was supposed to be this, this arts, you know, magic, mm. uh, dark magic. And, and so, you know, Shakespeare literally built his entire language of theater around this limitation. So the seats, seatings, seatings were um, sequestered. So you have the, you know, the princesses and princesses sitting in the box, you know, it's totally sequestered from the rest. And you have the patrons uh, in the middle tier uh, because they paid a lot of money. <laughs> and then, then, then you have the commoners, you know, who could come in paying very little, but they were given an opportunity to, for this entertainment to take place in front of them. And he built these characters, you know, that would speak like as if they were playing off each other, right? So Romeo and Juliet, right? So you have two, you know, two people from the other side of the tracks, right? And and they were literally speaking to each other in a manner um, that would lead to love and tragic love. And that that whole thing came about because they were socially distant. In a sense. <laughs> and everybody had to take some kind of a risk to to go to theater, right? It was an intentional decision on everybody's part. And and so I, I was thinking like what can what can happen now, you know, with Zoom and you know Amazon and how how can we, you know, uh, rise above the situation as artists and create something new into the world that would be more enduring, um, uh, you know, even more perhaps beautiful than had this not happened. I don't know the answer to that, but I would certainly love to collaborate with, you know, leaders, pastors, you know, uh, business folks, uh, and, and of course artists to, uh, to, you know, work towards something like that for the next generation. But, you know, that's, that's really culture care, you know, if we can do that. Um, but, uh, but I, I really think that, yes, 9-11 has taught me that, you know, that maple tree that was just devastated because of the fire smoke survived. Wow. You know, ne next year the leaves came back. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, I, I was just back there the other day looking at it. Because it means so much to see this tree not only survive, but, you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's grown. And um, so 
in some ways, nature is so resilient, right? It can teach us something about the possibilities that if you do plant a tree, um, that you will survive even <laughs> even 9-11. But, um, you know, also that we we are makers and we, we need to be making. Mm-hmm. You know, Clayton has become a musician and, and uh, he's always creating something and his friends that he grew up with uh, as well. So there's something about the beauty of that human capacity to make. And uh, we, we are all makers. So, you know, maybe that's part of what I would like to see us, you know, graduate from uh, limitations at this time to rise above is to see, uh, see ourselves as makers again. Right. You mentioned the Shakespeare's Theater. I participated and was able to watch and enjoy the Fellowship of the Performing Arts from New York, Max Max McLean's group. Just on Saturday, they did a Zoom presentation. Um, And it was wonderful. It was so wonderful to see uh, something being done because we're all grieving the loss of that encounter and that in-person experience. And and it was wonderful to watch to watch that take place. And I thought about the innovation and the, the opportunity for new imagination. You talk about cultural, cultural estuaries. And yes. I, I, I think that that's where we can start to think together and say, how do we make sure that Clayton and Clayton's friends, how can we create yeah. space and begin, those of us maybe who who have a longing to see more culture care and to see yeah. an, an idea of culture care really begin to, to produce fruit at a broad level. This, yeah. is the, this is the conversation, I think, where we can say, okay, a cultural estuary, that yeah. can help us understand our part yes. in that. So help us understand cultural sure. estuary and, so, and maybe how can maybe pastors and business leaders think about yes. themselves in, in that idea? Totally. And estuaries are where salt water and fresh water come to mix. So Chesapeake Bay, uh, Hudson River, uh, it is the most dynamic, diverse ecosystem uh, because of that. Um, and it's also the most delicate. So when pollution hits the estuaries, the entire ecosystem suffers. So when uh, early cleanup of the Hudson and Chesapeake Bay now, um, when nature rejuvenates um, and nature is stronger than we think, you know, Hudson River came back, the oysters came back almost immediately, although the pollution is still there. And what that does, it rejuvenates the entire ecosystem. There are 3 million striped bass that go after Hudson every May to spawn. And they have to gain strength in the estuary to uh, eat uh, you know, as much as they can to go up. And when they come down, which is around this time, um, they will also stay at the estuary for a while before they go out into the wider ocean. And so... I have likened that to cultural streams or cultural ecosystem. And I said, where are the cultural estuaries? Well, when you look back in history, where culture has been uh, greatly impacted and formed, were what I would call cultural estuaries. Um, you know, Shakespeare's time was certainly one um, with, with the influence of Ottoman Empire and coming in and mixture of 
so many cultures, um, you know, coming and going. Um, there, there was a time in New York City, early 20th century, where you know immigrants from Europe uh, settled to New York. All these, um, you know, artists and uh, entrepreneurs came in to reestablish themselves, and there was a fantastic pluralistic, you know, cultural history. And that tends to produce some of the most enduring work. And I, I really believe that we are entering a time where that is not geographically specific, but it is, it is actually in some ways virtual uh, through what we're experiencing, again, through this common curse of COVID-19, that there are so many ways that for us to communicate that I can have a Zoom session with my brothers and sisters in India, you know, every month to pray with them, to think about what can they do. Um, and, you know, Max and I have talked about actually, uh, we did a collaboration um, last year and he was very excited to think about, well, what if, what if we put theater together with best of music and best of the arts and poetry and what can happen, you know, and, and I think we need to have another conversation now in post-pandemic world, what that would look like. Um, but I, I really sense something new coming out and I think this cultural estuary is being brought on by this technology, you know, um, that we, we can have this fantastic diversity, you know, like if you look at Amazon, you know, it's not just one, one thing, it's, it's like thousands of one things, you know, and, and so that gives us options, but it's also, it, it's, 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 it's intense competition, right? And sometimes as, you know, Christians, we, we kind of think of a community and we want to, we want everybody to win, but really for, in the arts, I have found that the best thing for young artists to uh, experience is this fantastic competition. Um, mm. uh, you realize you are not the best at everything, you know, <laughs> and, and you you have to select. So, what is your voice? What is your slice of expression that you're going to focus on? That you are actually the best at, and unless you go through that refining process, we don't really, you know, have an enduring uh, expression. So I, I think that's true of everyone today. I think we, we are kind of forced into this scarcity mindset, but it's actually an opportunity to think about what are we really good at? How can I contribute to uh, this, you know, estuary? Um, and, and, and furthermore, be nurtured by it. You know, that what are we, you know, going upstream for, you know, and, and how, how, how can we contribute to the greater good of people, um, also the peers that we are, you know, traveling with um, in, in this journey of life. Um, how, how can we uh, be a team? How can we be um, um, a movement that reshapes the future for the next generations? And th those are opportunities, I think, you know, uh, presented to us today. I think as I listen, the invitation to pause and confess, you know, confession, repentance, these mm -hmm. things, 
in the in the church community we have language for that, but I don't know that we've applied that to to the idea of our culture and maybe where our theology, where our, where dualism, where whatever it is, has crept in and allowed us to either participate in culture war or to allow for it or to um, retreat from it in a way. And so even as you were talking, I was thinking, I think step one for many of us is just to pause and to listen and to, and then to, to confess and to just simply say, maybe, maybe the confession is simply, I have not even been a part of this conversation. And, Lord, there's downstream implications, and I'm yeah. now grieving. Yeah, and, and it's a complex ecosystem. And part of, I think, what I have experienced in my discipleship and my spiritual formation over the years, you know, I've been involved in every uh, church planting projects and parachurches, <laughs> you know, and we have all these discipleship materials and evangelism materials, but it's so individualistic, we forget to ask, when Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, we may ask ourselves, you know, every New Year's Day, how am I doing uh, with these fruit of the Spirit, you know, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so forth, right? And we might work on those, our personal goal for the year, but we never stop to ask, how is our culture doing? Mm. You know, even to ask, how is a culture of a church doing, you know, let alone the general culture? And as I said, they are connected. It's not just, you can you cannot say us versus them because we're swimming in that culture. It's the same water. Uh, therefore, we really need to be asking, how is our culture doing? And we need to be asking non-Christians, wow. how do you see us as Christians? How do you see the church? Do we have love? Do we have joy? Do we have peace? Do we have patience? Mm. And you know that's an indictment, right? I mean, every single one. Instead of love, we have this divisiveness. You know, instead of peace, we're anxious. Instead of joy, we seem to be fretting for you know every every you know inch of this cultural territory. So what happened to us? You know, all these discipleship programs and all these things that we have invested and and helped each other to try to accomplish. So so there has to be some in some way uh, kind of this recalibration of spiritual formation as a cultural practice. Spiritual formation not just for me and for you, but for our entire community. You know, what how how do we do that? And I think if you study the estuary formation, you see that these fantastic you know, elements that are competing against each other actually create healthy ecosystem where there are interdependent elements that can coexist, even though they are perhaps, you know, uh, vying for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tend to work toward diversity rather than homogeneity. Um, so so that that is an interesting premise to think about church planting you know when when we think about denominations always splitting you know and then creating new factions well that it's okay as long as we understand that it's interdependence it's not independence or dependence you know there's interdependent elements that 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 can coexist as a whole 
you know, you you can really see the full spectrum of color rather than just one, you know, black and white, uh, you know, you're, you're this and you're that. And that's what an artist can bring. They, they understand the complexity, you know, a Shakespearean character playing Prospero in, in The Tempest. You can play that, like, millions of different ways. Mm. And, and if you understand that possibility, generative possibility, you are actually bringing something new into the world, even though you, you, know, you may be on stage every single day on Zoom now, <laughs> every single day, but you can play the role differently every time. And, and so that, that gives birth to diversity um, and this interdependence that uh, I think is key to uh, not just to the arts, but to the church. Yeah, yeah. You are not only leading this conversation um, and leading this idea forward. You're an agent of culture care every single day. You're a maker. How? What do you? What is the most important habit or practice that you have learned personally to keep yourself in, in a whole place so that you can contribute well and not maybe rush forward with this idea and then kind of unknowingly we're using strategies and tactics and we're our methods maybe are not in alignment with the the idea of culture care what's what are the habits and practices maybe the top two couple things that you do to keep yourself in step in and whole as you try to care for culture yeah i always say to young artists i'm mentoring you know take care and return to your first love and what I mean by that is a lot of times, especially when you're successful in your arts, you get locked into a certain type of an identity. You know, I think it's probably celebrity culture that we kind of worship, you know. But what is your first love? Why did you become an actor? Why did you be- begin to write? Um, and the same thing can be asked for pastors and business folks. You know, why, you know, what was the first time that you felt... Uh, this love to do something and if we can get back there which means that we have to release ourselves from the gazes of other people uh, resume building uh, selves and say well you know who, who am I and and what is my what is my first love and can I get back to that while you know, being able to use the experience that I've gained over, you know, my journey um, as a human being. Um, And I really feel like when I'm not able to look at myself as a child of God, you know, um, I, I lose this sense of belonging and I lose this ability to behold the world full of fragments but to see that as beautiful and not trying to fix it necessarily, although I, I want to be part of healing and mending, but to make new out of that um, rather than trying to perfect, you know, fixing it or trying to um, make myself perfect or, uh, you know, the, the, this is a journey that... The more we understand God's perfection, the more we feel inadequate. Um, And I think part of that is being able to open up and say, 
I am accepted, forgiven by grace of God to be able to stand before the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn. I can go in there because of Jesus. He has been the sacrifice for me, and and I can um, enter with confidence and joy and receive peace and receive patience, receive kindness, receive all these things that I need to grow as a person. And so I try to do that with my work, uh, the, the process of my work. Uh, I try to do that with even the business side of my art, um, ministry, you know, mentoring, everything. I, I want people to be freed to look at themselves and say, oh, you know, like, like look, looking at a butterfly and smiling, you know, <laughs> which, which doesn't seem like much, but I've witnessed somebody do this recently and I haven't seen that person smile in a long time. And I was so moved by it because I know that took the Holy Spirit. And this person is not a Christian, but I know that the Holy Spirit was working so that he can smile looking at a single butterfly flying in front of him. That, that's just as significant as, you know, um, any kind of milestone that uh, anybody can have. Yeah. Amen, amen. What a wonderful way to close a conversation. I just think <laughs> you, that picture of the butterfly and somebody smiling yeah. that hasn't smiled in a long time. Um, I think that yeah. your work and your life has contributed moments like that to so many of us. I know that as I've looked at your art and I've spent time just with your words, though I'm a guy who uh, I had to fight through a season of trying to find that smile. And I mean, my wife actually yeah. said that to me a while back. She said, I haven't seen you smile in a long time. And when the smile came back, that's a pretty special that's a pretty yes. special moment. So yes. thank you yes. just for, as an artist, you help us in that way. So we just want to say thank you for who you are and all the life and beauty you contribute to the world. We're, we're very grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Lab the Podcast. You can rate and review us there. And then follow me at Zach J. Elliott or on my website, www.zachjelliot.com. I'll see you again for our next lab session. And until then, here's to more life and more beauty.